Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 196 of the Bowery Boys. Ready to wear. A history of New York's garment district. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we're starting the new year by looking fashion forward to actually one of the most famous neighborhoods in America for the production of clothing. That would be New York's fashion district or more popularly known as the garment district. We are looking forward, Greg. But you and I, I mean, we really talked about this for a while. You know, which topic we should kick off the year for? I, You know, we really hemmed and hawed over this. <laughs> oh, no. Prepare for puns galore. No, no, seriously, though. We, we, I think we chose this topic rather off the cuff. <laughs> An onslaught of puns before the, before the music, Tom. Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll cut it off there because finally we did clothes in on a topic. <laughs> well, let's, we'll stop skirting the issue and let's get to the subject here, which is the Garmin District. Perhaps not the most exciting one to walk through, you know, because it is mostly for the manufacture and the creation of high fashion, low fashion, things that you can buy in department stores. And I might actually take issue with you on that, Greg, because I think it's quite interesting to walk through. It's perhaps the only neighborhood in Manhattan today where you can still dodge people pushing carts of things that were produced inside of buildings that you're walking past. Where else can you do that? That's true. You know, New York actually has a surprisingly long and somewhat controversial history with the production of apparel. In this show, we won't be spending so much time on the runways of high fashion, Mm -hmm. but rather in the nitty gritty of what went into making New York City a fashion capital. And I think that the story is is fascinating because it really does weave together, if you will, sorry, but if you will... (laughs) The threads of many other shows, uh, from the Orchard Street show to Ladies Mile to Hell's Kitchen, the Tenderloin, we have talked about so many of these different topics. It's great to bring them together into one, you know, piece. All those stories all stitched together here. So, and Greg, literally, I mean so, join us as we examine the fabric of one of New York's oldest industrial neighborhoods, the Garment District. Red alert, pun overload, pun overload.
Okay, Greg. Well, now that we got, I think, all of our puns out of the way. We purged all of those, yes. We have been purged of sewing puns. (laughs) Of garment puns. We have no more. Perhaps you can situate us today. We're talking about the garment district, but where is it? Because it's moved over the course of New York's history, and it even means different things to different people. And it's interesting because the current garment district is actually like in one of the densest, busiest parts of the city. Mm. It's adjacent to Herald Square, just below Times Square, from 6th Avenue all the way to around 9th Avenue, and then between 34th and 42nd Street. Although, to be honest, most of most of the establishments, most of the, the businesses here are on those side streets, and also principally up and down 7th Avenue. Okay. Now, from a wanderer's perspective here, it's probably one of the least interesting areas of Midtown to walk through because it's almost all office buildings and, and lofts. Many of them are striking looking, but you kind of have to stop and stare at them and notice these interesting details. You'll kind of know where you're at because at street level, the Garmin District is actually characterized by, of course, a lot of garment stores to this day. By which you mean fashion boutiques? Fashion boutiques, maybe even wholesalers, that type of thing. Gown stores, accessories, places to buy buttons and beads, lace, and, and of course, fabric. If you watch Project Runway, if any of you are fans of, the, of Project Runway, you know that they often go to a fabric store called Mood. That is in the Garment District here at 37th Street. Okay, so the, the store is selling fashion, but also all of the, the supplies to produce the fashion are what one walks by mm-hmm. on, on the street. But what's actually upstairs in these buildings? There are thousands of businesses just in this one area that are in the business of apparel, from, from distribution to manufacturing, you know, to the basic design of dresses, to their promotion and wholesaling and retailing to all the big department stores. Even though I said that the boundary is technically at 34th, I'd like to grandfather in a little place called the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is out of the district, but over down on 27th Street. So you can imagine this sort of unofficial boundary of this whole area just being singularly defined to produce garments. Okay, so that's where it is today. But how did the garment district wind up here? It's true that clothing manufacturers and businesses related to clothing have been all over lower Manhattan beginning in the early 19th century. In fact, the first recorded clothing factory was in 1832. Now, maybe that seems a little strange and even a little late because people were clearly wearing clothes before 1832. You didn't have rampant nudity in the streets. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes you did. But generally speaking, people were were clothed. So where were they buying those clothes? Well, in specific, in referring to ready-to-wear clothes, meaning that clothes that have been manufactured without an owner in mind, right? Just generically produced items of clothing that can be bought Mm -hmm. inside a store. Now, before the 19th century, generally speaking, with some small exceptions, people bought materials. They made the clothes at home often by women, of course, or they had them delivered to be custom-made specifically for them. Which sounds pretty pricey. Yes. So today it's considered that's a luxury service. Back then, a lot more common. Although generally speaking, people were making the majority of their own clothes. Yeah, they were even sometimes making their own fabrics. I mean, most homes in their up to the early 19th century would have spinning wheels in them. 
Now, obviously, that just seems in our modern mind like a kind of a headache, you know. But people back then didn't own thousands of outfits. They didn't have huge closets unless they were incredibly wealthy. And, of course, outside of those people in the market for a lavish ball gown, clothes tended to be kind of simple back then as well. But we're talking in the early 19th century, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and innovations in manufacturing. And so thus, mass production began doing away with all those little steps, and you could sort of combine them. And producers could make these ready-to-wear garments. In the earliest years, of businesses weren't very large. The ones that focused on doing this or started adding ready-to-wear into their inventory. But an early business that picked this up was H and D H Brooks and Company, which formed in 1818, a small storefront on Catherine and Cherry Street in the Lower East Side. They would, of course, later change their name to Brooks Brothers. But when did clothing start to be mass produced? This small scale stuff just sounds so expensive. It was, and the first clothing factory in New York City was in 1832. And this is the dark side of the early days of New York fashion. Because the first clothing factory was rooted in southern slavery, and it was a factory for cheaply made clothing that was sent to the South to be worn by people who were enslaved there. The first prominent clothing manufacturer, his name was George Opdyke. He owned a successful New Orleans concern, and then 1832 opened up a factory over on Hudson Street. Opdyke, interesting, would later become the mayor of New York City. Mm. But, so that was one of the first ones, but throughout the next couple decades, ready-to-wear became more acceptable, larger manufacturers moved in. Opdyke and these similar businesses kicked off a revolution so that by 1837, $2.5 million worth of ready-made clothing was being manufactured right here in Manhattan. Well, given the other changes that were happening in the 1830s, like the opening of the Erie Canal and the explosion of the import-export business, which I imagine meant that a lot of textiles were also yeah. being stored in New York City warehouses. It seemed like, you know, all the supplies were here. and All of that was propping the business up, right? And all of this, of course, just in time, because the city, of course, was about to be filled with thousands of new immigrants arriving daily, and many of them looking for jobs. Thus, it's not surprising, then, that the garment industry would soon be centered in immigrant neighborhoods, and in particular, the Lower East Side. Well, and not just any immigrants, considering that there was massive immigration of Russian Jews in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and many, many of these people arriving were skilled as tailors and dressmakers and, and had served other roles back in their homeland in the garment industry. And assisting them in those jobs, though, here when they arrived in New York City, was one of the most important inventions ever made, one could argue. That is, namely, the invention of the sewing machine. Various models came into the market starting in the 1840s. You know, I think I consider the sewing machine, at least when I read about the early days, almost like the laptop computer mm. of the day, because what it did is it allowed for a certain mobility, right? So you could take the work home with you. So it used to be in these big factories. By the 1860s and 1870s, you had immigrants taking the work home with them. And so that was sort of the prime method of making clothes was actually in these tenements, you would walk through tenement neighborhoods. We mentioned this in the Orchard Street show. And you would just hear the humming of sewing machines coming from all of these apartments as thousands of immigrants who were employed by contractors 
would make these clothes at home and they would often focus on one particular item all day. Like, could you imagine just spending the whole day making hundreds of sleeves, Mm. for instance? And it would be an entire family who was making those hundreds of sleeves. They'd all be hunched together around their sewing machine, maybe a bolt of fabric uh, in the corner with somebody working the hot iron while somebody else was working the sewing machine. Great family bonding time, I'm sure, especially in hot summer days. And given the very lax, shall we say, or non-existent regulations, the conditions were in fact quite terrible. Yeah, they were awful. And this, I read that in the year 1890, Tom, that 80% of all garment production that was occurring in New York City was happening below 14th Street mm. and concentrated in these neighborhoods. So this was the heart, this is where the garment industry was truly born. Okay, so that is how the clothing is being produced and made by, say, 1900. And that's half of the equation, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're talking about the garment district, and we're also talking about something called the fashion district. And people Mm -hmm. use these terms interchangeably. But if we explore both sides of that issue here, we've got the garment part down. But how did people know what was fashionable or what were they what were they wearing what's well, a good question because we obviously know today that there's hundreds of different outlets to observe people looking good and or looking terrible and knowing which ones you're supposed to wear which are the trends of the day but that's a little bit more difficult in the 19th century there were no like proper fashion shows. There were very few fashion magazines, although newspapers did often write about uh, fashion. Did you just walk over to Fifth Avenue and check out what like high society was was walking around in? Indeed you did, actually. The fashion parades on Sunday afternoons of rich women in all of their clothes from Paris. Because keep in mind, people weren't, they didn't consider America to be the one creating these tastes. They Uh. were being imported mostly from Paris and perhaps other European cities. But these were women who could afford to go there or have husbands or other family members who could buy these clothes for them. Here they were propped up and down the street, and people, hundreds of people, would stand on the sidewalk and just watch these women as they were just going about their day. Very odd, but that's actually how a lot of these early fashion trends started, Hmm. is sort of observing the rich. Well, by 1900, the the garment industry had turned into this enormous part of the city's economy. Like you were saying, people all over the city were wearing clothing that was produced in the Lower East Side, but people all over the country were wearing this. By 1910, 70% of women's clothing worn in the United States was produced in New York. And 40% of men's clothing was produced in New York. It's an enormous number. And then if you think that it's mostly all below 14th Street, that's astonishing. Right. Well, and and just the sheer number of people who worked in the garment industry. By 1910, again, about half of the working Jewish men in the city worked in the garment industry, and two-thirds of the working Jewish women worked in the garment industry. And this was paralleled in other ethnic groups as well. It seems unreal that there was even enough spaces to even manufacture this amount of clothing, especially if they're in tenements. Right. Well, and as we discussed in the show on Orchard Street a couple months back, they would only stay in the Lower East Side for so long because of space constraints, but also because there would be new laws enacted uh, to protect the public health and force out a lot of these makeshift factories from these tenements. But when I say public health, ironically, and this is sort of sardonically, maybe public health here refers to the health of the consumer, because there was a growing sentiment, because the city had suffered various health outbreaks and epidemics, 
And there was this belief that these health crises were actually caused by the unsanitary conditions in which their clothes were produced. And so they believed that actually the tenements themselves were causing uh, the spread of disease because somehow uh, the disease and pestilence would get onto these bits of fabric and would be passed off to those wearing them down the line. And to refer to another one of our past podcasts, the one on typhoid Mary, which is around this period a little earlier, you know, there was really a lack of understanding of how these various germs spread. And so you would have a lot of sweeping changes to the city that really had nothing to actually do at the end with the eradication of those diseases. Right. And there would be various commissions that would be formed to look into the situation and see how to eradicate disease, which is a good thing also because it would lead to stricter regulations uh, for tenements themselves including in 1911 and 1912 when new zoning uh, laws were enacted. And it did force most of these tenement-based sweatshops, force them into new structures that were being constructed for the most part where there was land uh, that they could occupy, which was farther north around 14th Street. And this was the loft building. This was a new building option um, that was like an apartment building in that it was tall and it could be filled with occupants, but it was devoted to manufacturing instead of living. And obviously, this is a very common building around. We see many of these are still around today. Right. And they're mostly larger spaces, and they don't have quite the same amenities that a residential place would have. However, they have some very key differences uh, that today we look at as great features because they're big, open, and airy. Well, they're big, open, and airy. Well, they're big. They have high ceilings because the factories needed to fit machinery in there. They're airy because they have giant windows, and that was mostly to let in fresh air to blow out any sort of disease or pestilence that was lingering around, and of course, to give fresh air to the people working in there. But I can't help but think it wasn't primarily to make the clothes cleaner. No, that yeah, that produced. was probably down on the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was also obviously to let in plenty of light so that people could work longer hours and save the company uh, bosses money on electricity. So if you go to someone's apartment in Manhattan and it's a really nice apartment with high ceilings, most likely that was a loft for, <laughs> for the manufacture of most likely clothing. And let us not forget that at the time there were also unscrupulous factory owners who took advantage of the thousands of the newly arriving immigrants every day by giving them low-paying jobs. However, it was also an entry into the workforce for many but there was also a tendency to take advantage of many of the women who were working there. And these poor conditions would spur the formation of early labor unions. But it would take another episode, a tragedy that happened in 1911, to really have big reform take place in the industry. And that is, of course, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Which we're coming up on the 105th anniversary of that. That was on March 25th of 1911. And Greg has an entire podcast from several years back uh, that is definitely uh, worth finding and listening to if you haven't already. The tragedy took place in a factory loft building located on Washington Place, very near Washington Square Park at Green Street. There were about 800 workers in all that worked inside this building, almost entirely young women, and most of them recently arrived immigrants. The Triangle Waste Company itself occupied three floors of the 10-floor building, the floors 8, 9, and 10. And on March 25th, 
1911, around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Saturday, a fire somehow started on the 8th floor. There are different theories about how it started. Uh, somebody flicked a cigarette onto a heap of fabric, perhaps. However, when discovered, workers rushed to escape the building only to find that the bosses had locked the doors, preventing them from leaving early, ostensibly. But in this case, it prevented the hundreds of people from escaping the building. Those inside panicked and trampled over each other, trying to get into elevators and onto fire escapes, a fire escape which ripped from the side of the factory wall. And as flames shot through the building and out the window, the employees had no choice but to jump from the windows, plunging to the streets below before horrified crowds. In the end, 146 people would die in the tragedy, 123 women and 23 men. The tragedy, of course, led to an investigation, and although the factory owners were never found guilty of manslaughter, it did lead to years of investigations and studies and finally reforms that would lead to better and safer working conditions. Uh, for example, from 1911 to 1913, New York State enacted 60 new laws that were all meant to make life safer for the workers. And furthermore, workers rallied for their own protection, and many joined the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, which had organized in 1900, but it really gained strength after the tragedy. What's especially eerie, Tom, is that the building where the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was located mm -hmm. is still there. It's called the Ash Building. It's owned by NYU. The floors where the fires happened are renovated, and you know there's no sign of that, obviously, 105 years later. So it's especially eerie to think of this building as being you know, a notable building in the history of New York's garment industry. And it's a landmarked building, and, but it's, just, it's there and it's still so intact. So there's, mm. there's something quite haunting about that to this day. So that was 1911, and that is where one of these factory loft buildings was located. So that's a good indicator of how the industry was moving north. Moving north yeah. But many of the factories were actually moving quite a bit farther north and much closer to Ladies Mile. Now, we have a great show on Ladies Mile as well. It was a fashion district, mostly for women, in the 1890s, 1900, 1910s. That was mostly along 6th Avenue and Broadway from 14th up to 23rd Street. And that also included 5th Avenue. And just think about how those are some long blocks, you know, mm -hmm. between 5th and 6th and between 6th and 7th, as anybody knows who's walking across town. They're the longest. They, are, they seemingly go on forever and ever. And so there's a lot of room there to build big industrial loft buildings. It made a lot of sense because the department stores were there, so the industry could follow. You could be closer to your commercial outlets and your clients. And this facilitated a whole boom in the industry. And this is still 1910, so 100 years ago, a little less than 100 years ago. Right, especially once the department stores started lining Fifth Avenue. Now it was great. You know, the, the whole area belonged to the garment industry types, right? Not just the workers, but also the bosses and the buyers and the sellers. They could walk right out onto Fifth Avenue and gaze into these department store windows and see what was for sale. So before the 20s, before all these stores moved uptown, they were all centralized here in the neighborhood of today's Chelsea, pretty much. Yeah, before they moved uptown. They moved uptown partially because of all these factories. 
series mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't want this whole conflagration along Fifth Avenue. Well, you were trying to attract customers. This wasn't desirable. Right. You didn't want to have all of these thousands of people clogging the sidewalks and sort of congregating around. It was actually not at all desirable for the department stores or the high-end hotels. It didn't make a comfortable situation for New York's wealthiest citizens that like to walk along Fifth Avenue. And so all of those business concerns, the non-garment business concerns. Non-garment ones. Right. The department stores and the ritzy boutiques formed something called the Fifth Avenue Association under the leadership of Robert Greer Cook launched a campaign to protect and preserve Fifth Avenue's glamorous identity and to keep it free of the garment industry, lofts, and... Smoky and pleasant businesses. Right. And this is as early as 1912, because they saw what had happened between 14th and 23rd Street. And now, as department stores were starting to push north of 23rd, they wanted to preserve that territory as a kind of glamorous territory. Mm -hmm. The last thing they wanted was these pesky garment loft factories to follow them uptown. They wanted Fifth Avenue to be an avenue like the Champs-Élysées in Paris or the Unter den Linden in Berlin. They wanted it to be a world-class, glamorous boulevard. I found an article in the New York Times, November 12th, 1912, headline, Urges Quick Action to Save Fifth Avenue. High buildings threaten to transform it into a cannon of skyscrapers. Quote, The beauty and attractiveness of Fifth Avenue for business north of 23rd Street should be preserved, Mr. Brunner, an architect and chairman of the Fifth Avenue Association, declared. We realize that it is useless to change conditions for the present between 14th and 23rd (laughs) Street, where the tall buildings contain so many garment workers that the sidewalks of the avenues there are almost impassable in the noon hour, in the late afternoon. But this evil can be prevented north of 23rd Street. Many of the merchants are already following out on the plan proposed. Well, Interesting. Yes, that plan, Greg, involved an actual strategy implemented by these department stores, but also by banks and politicians to block garment factories from developing anywhere near Fifth Avenue. And in July of 1916, the city passed a new zoning law that did just that. It actually intimidated the manufacturers. They they basically said, we don't want you. Now, you'll forgive me, but I have to read this, which was also published in the New York Times on March 5th, 1916. Headline, Fifth Avenue, deadline set for factories. Quote, get out, move back. You are not wanted in the area bounded by 33rd Street, 59th Street. 3rd and 7th Avenues, nor in the 33rd or 32nd Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. If you know what is good for you, you won't come or stay in this preserve after February 1st, 1917. Quote, Thus have the 5th Avenue shops, the hotels, clubs, trust companies, banks, and real estate owners of the neighborhood spoken to the manufacturers of suits, cloaks, furs, clothing, petticoats, etc., Their announcement is made in full-page advertisements in the newspaper this morning, and believe J.H. Burton, chairman of the body signing the announcement, they mean business. It goes on to say that all of these undersigned businesses that included all of the big department stores, including B. Altman and others, 
and all of the undersigned banks <laughs> that had attached their mm-hmm. name to the ad, they all said that if a factory moves inside this new district, mm-hmm. the department stores won't buy any of their clothes. The banks won't give them any money wow. to fund their businesses, etc. That's strong-arming them into essentially a district that was just west of there, right? Right. Eventually. The idea being to keep them close enough that deliveries uh, would happen easily, but to keep away the workers and keep away the undesirables from this Grand Avenue. And it's interesting because you said that I believe 7th Avenue was, was the western border of this civilized area. Right? Yes, 7th Avenue from 33rd all the way up to 59th. So it's interesting that 7th Avenue would then become Fashion Avenue, would would become the backbone of the Garmin District was from this decision. In other words, it worked. Because (laughs) by the the end of the year, 95% of these factories had moved away from 5th Avenue. They had moved off to this other zone. Those borders... 34th to 42nd Street and, you know, okay, 7th Avenue and some of that allows in 6th Avenue over to 9th Avenue. And most of that allowable district for this uh, manufacturing of clothing was right on top of another district uh, referred to as the Tenderloin. Oh, yeah. So it was another way, I guess, to run out those undesirable gambling dens and prostitution houses by putting in a bunch of clothing factories. Right. Because a lot of those... Houses of ill repute were located in small brownstones, right? So what this did in 1917 was set off a huge land grab as developers knew that these properties were going to get snatched up and ripped down and in their place would be built these giant uh, loft factories for the garment industry. The tenderloin was now out of fashion. Brazier's had effectively pushed out the brothels. (laughs) Irony. And, you know, you said along 7th Avenue, along these major avenues, developers would build these massive new offices and loft buildings, many with innovative new designs that really reflected the roaring 20s. Uh, This included the massive Garment Center Capitol buildings along 7th Avenue that were constructed in 1919. And 10 of the the buildings in the Garment District today were designed by Eli Jacques Kahn, who was born in New York in 1884. And he fashioned these these loft buildings into these gorgeous and interesting pieces of architecture, including, perhaps most notably, 1400 Broadway, which in 1930 was built upon the site of the former Knickerbocker Theater, which was one of the most famous theaters in New York. So this is also coinciding with the push of the theater district and the entertainment About district. About 42nd Street. Farther north, exactly. And a lot of these con buildings, when you walk down the street and really start to stare at them, they have some incredible details, like a, a building that was known for four fur coats will have little fox decorative details, or another building may have a spool of thread sort of like woven into the decor. You sound like maybe you wrote that into a book recently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Guilty as charged. So the Garmin District had been effectively pushed up into this zone from 34th to 42nd Street. And it was here that we could argue it really thrived like never before. We'll get to the heyday of the Garment District. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. 
It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. After this. The Garment District, 1927. A quote from one of my favorite history books in recent years called Supreme City by Donald L. Miller. The streets were jammed with trucks loading and unloading thick stacks of women's garments. So many trucks that traffic failed to move an inch in 20 minutes. Pushboys were everywhere, recklessly maneuvering, swaying racks of dresses across 7th Avenue between buildings and into and out of narrow elevator cars. Quote, it's a beehive of workers, wrote Fortune magazine, the one place in the world where the elevators never seemed to catch up with the traffic. Unquote. There were no smokestacks or clanging machinery, but the noise was deafening, the shrieking horns of trucks, the booming voices of the loft bosses, and the whirring of thousands of electrically driven sewing machines. That sounds fabulous. That sounds like a heyday. And then, so that was 1927, and this, the, the bustle of these streets is it's so vibrant and lively, and it lasted for several decades. Today we think of fashion more in associated with boutiques and runways, right? But back here, back in the heydays, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, this was the center of fashion. And the styles of the day were hammered out here in workrooms, in lofts, all through the district. You said along the avenues and especially along those side streets. But could you locate a particular center of this garment district? Well, instead of letting me describe that, let me... Take the words of Lauren Bacall, who was oh, a young, <laughs> please do a young model in early 1941 when she made the following recollection: "Quote, I asked a couple other girls how to find work modeling clothes on Seventh Avenue. They said I should go down to a certain Seventh Avenue buildings. Nothing really below 500 Seventh Avenue." The best houses were in 550 or 530, and you could squeeze in 495, but that was it. Anything below that was tacky, unquote. <laughs> well, we certainly don't want to be seen as tacky by Ms. Bacall. So, <laughs> no, no. Where, where, what street does that correspond to? So that was 500? That was 37th Street. Okay. So it's funny. Still is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it still is 37th Street. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the most visually hot corner today right but it's but back in the day when the top designers in all of america were situated here at this spot cranking out the hottest latest fashions now by the 1940s and during and after world war ii 
the United States became a powerhouse in the world of high fashion, driven in large part by the designers here at, on the Garment District. Even during the war, so in the early 1940s, the city even promoted a campaign where the clothing would have labels inside of it that said New York Creation. Stitched, uh, stitched, stitched right in. Yeah, stitched, you know, a little touch of class. And so it would be like a badge of like, oh yeah, we're, we're a new hot voice in the world of fashion. But this is also because during the 1940s, Paris was occupied, right? So yeah. th- this was certainly a hindrance to their own claim uh, as the fashion capital of the world. Well, New York was taking advantage of some of the bad things that were happening in the rest of the world. In this case, they snatched a little bit of that, the fashion glory from Paris by this time. And if the women who were strolling Fifth Avenue were not going to go over to Paris during the occupation, during World War II, to go to the fashion shows and to buy the latest dresses, well, they could do it right here in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the centerpiece of the Garment District is actually 557th Avenue. And this was due to some key designers and manufacturers who are inside here. We recorded a show a few years ago on Tin Pan Alley. And do you remember the, I, the, the notion of the streets being filled with people who were going to purchase music from mm. people, right? And they'd just go door to door, and you could hear mm-hmm. the plunking of keyboards um, while walking down the sidewalk. So the same thing is happening here in these buildings, in particular this building. But instead of music, it was clothing. It was fashion and style. Were you hearing sewing machines? It's furious work, yes. By tailors and seamstresses, designers were, were rapidly reworking outfits to meet the schedules of department stores or famous clientele who were coming by. You had these incredible sights of men racing racks of gowns down side streets to and from 550. And at lunchtime, it was impossible to actually get down the street. Makes my stomach growl just thinking about <laughs> yeah. it. Sounds frustrating. Very frustrating. Well, because there were also trucks driven by union workers to getting supplies to a showroom. Occasionally, a taxi pulling over to let out a model who's hurrying to get to a fitting. And it wasn't just these loft like warehouses and, and work tables. At 550, designers had graciously appointed showrooms to meet with these famous people. So in 550, I mean, most of the biggest names of fashion seem to have had a had a house here at some point. Bill Blask, Oscar De La Renta, Carl Lagerfeld, Jeffrey Bean, you know, all the big names. Donna Karen, to this day, is still there. In 550. In 550. Now, just to single out one particular house here. I uh, love that, how you call them houses. <laughs> oh, they well, are. They are. They're houses. Yeah, um, there's, so, houses. there's so many names. Uh, as, I just didn't know oh. this was a show about housing. <laughs> So there's so many names here, especially in the 40s and 50s, that are not quite household names anymore. I mean, I could sit here and list them. Just one that I wanted to point out, a prototypical figure of the mid-century. It was the House of Leslie Fay, started by a powerful fashion mogul named Fred Pomerantz. Leslie Fay was the name of his daughter. He, he actually started designing garments for women in the military during World War II, and a lot of these famous designers actually had background in that. Pomerantz was very indicative of the showy personalities of the day. And so on this crowded street in front of 550, he would pull up 
onto the curb in his Rolls Royce for a day of work after an evening of backroom gambling. So he like he, he would emerge onto the sidewalk and one of these great personalities of the fashion world. Well, that sounds glamorous. Rolls mm-hmm. Royce gambling, falling onto the sidewalk. <laughs> well, you, you ain't seen nothing yet, Tom. Uh, for another perspective, let me reach into the memoir of famous fashion designer Arnold Scossi. From his memoir, Women I Have Dressed and Undressed. Mm. Quote, of course, my private clients for whom I did special clothes came to 557th Avenue. Valerian Rybar had decorated the showroom with all the furniture, sconces, and silk that my uptown salon had. Arlene Francis, the Gabors and Lucille Ball, Nanette Fabre, Joan Sutherland, and Lady Sarah Spencer Churchill, and every other private client I dressed, loved coming to 7th Avenue. Must have been the sconces. <laughs> well, so we spent a lot of time here at 550. It's the most sterling address But there were other buildings, of course, that were famed for certain kinds of fashion. By the 1950s, you had these buildings that were specialized in certain kinds of apparel. 1385 Broadway was considered the bridal building, for instance. So lobbies of veils, yards of tool. Nervous women going up and down (laughs) the elevators. Nervous grooms, more likely. (laughs) At 500 7th Avenue was women's outerwear. 1400 Broadway was for the more affordable dresses. So these places, all of these places were feeding the stores, the stars, the fashion magazines, which, of course, then, you know, reverberated out into the United States. And then, of course, also internationally, because now it was becoming a fashion capital. By the mid-century, fashion was being presented in, in new ways. You know, there was the dawning of the fashion show that we know today with the runway. The earlier eras, of course, had department store fashion shows, but they'd be very intimate with women, you know, sitting around smoking, sitting on couches as The people. clients. Right. The customers were on the couches smoking, smoking as the models came through. I imagine that Lauren... Miss Bacall probably did some of this too, would walk in in the fashions, and but it would be a lot more casual, like low-key affair, not like the fashion shows of today. Well, in 1943, New York had its first fashion week where the latest clothes were presented to the press. In fact, it was called Press Week. And this is an ancestor of today's modern fashion week where you have hundreds and hundreds of designers and thousands of people flocking to these tents, journalists from around the world. And interestingly enough, its original home was there by Bryant Park, which is on the outskirts of the Garment District. In 1944, since it's, you know, a lot of this fashion revolutionary stuff is happening in the 1940s, there was a formation of a new college on the top two floors of the High School of Needle Trades. That's an actual school today. It's the High School of Fashion Industries, and it's on 24th Street. But this new college was developed in the top two floors, which would become the Fashion Institute of Technology, encouraging people to enter into this industry. By 1959, they moved into that interesting, brutalist campus that they currently reside in on 7th Avenue and, you know, is a vital part of the whole garment industry. It feeds into these businesses. It feeds it with brand new inspired workers. Well, by the 1950s, though, there was a little bit of a crisis. By the 50s and 60s, New York was actually losing thousands of garment workers because there was, by now, tons of competition throughout the United States, situated all over the country. And because there was a lot of 
new different fashion styles, things like sportswear. Right. Sportswear is interesting, you know, because as it crept up in the 1950s, right, Mm -hmm, late mm -hmm. 40s and 50s, suddenly people could just go and buy these mass-produced pieces of separates. Mm -hmm. So you could buy a separate top and a separate bottom that had been made not by some skilled tailor, but in a factory someplace. Which is far cheaper. And so thus, a lot of those manufacturers actually ended up outside of New York because New York then tended to steer more towards the high fashion, the couture. Which is also ironic because it was a time in the 1940s and 50s of a lot of labor unrest in the garment trade and some really high-profile strikes and victories by the unions. So they were winning union battles but at the same time, losing business as an industry to the cheaper sportswear business that was Mm -hmm. increasingly locating outside the city where they didn't need to pay for the skilled labor. And it's ironic because that sportswear itself was developed by designers in houses in New New York. York. But even with these tensions, uh, the industry stayed strong in the 1950s Although in the 1960s, a new kind of competition, not from cheaper places in the United States, but cheaper places in the world to produce, drew business away from New York City. Suddenly, manufacturers could produce in Hong Kong and elsewhere in Asia, and domestic manufacturers found it very difficult to compete with those costs, especially when they were in the business increasingly of sportswear and of selling separates. Well, I mean, that's where you have a sort of unsavory world today, where you'll have a a country that has a whole sweatshop system where people are being paid very, very low wages to make expensive tennis shoes. Right. It's a situation that perhaps is accelerated today, but it it goes all the way back to the 1960s. Some New York clothing manufacturers would consolidate in order to compete uh, effectively with these brands and become these bigger global brands, right? While others would close up shop. In the 1970s and 80s, the Garment District found new fuel in the wave of new immigrants who were arriving to New York, many of them coming from Asia and from Central America. And these new New Yorkers were not just working in the industry, but many of them were also owning new fashion outlets themselves. However, of course, the 70s and 80s were a difficult time for the city as a whole, as we've talked about in just about every show we've ever recorded, (laughs) in this sort of tooth and nail competition over price. As many of the local manufacturers were cutting costs, conditions also deteriorated. And in many of the the factory lofts here and elsewhere, I mean, there were sweatshops, of course, in Chinatown, conditions deteriorated. They'd sort of devolved back into the bad old days of the sweatshops. Compounding the situation, many local manufacturers faced a cash crunch. They, they lacked the money to fully fund their businesses because their businesses tended to be seasonal, right? Mm-hmm. And they needed capital to get, to get their next line out. But banks uh, in the 70s and 80s, looking at the rather bleak situation, were less inclined to loan them money. So where did they get the money? Well, they found it the old-fashioned way. They went for unregulated money. (laughs) Organized crime? By the mob, yes. Mm -hmm. You could get money quickly at very high interest rates, and you better pay it back. Organized crime took a special interest in the fashion industry. And they found ingenious ways to infiltrate almost almost every aspect. And they did this, Greg, by controlling the trucking industry. 
Well, of course, control the supplies coming in and the products moving out. Right. Then, that makes sense. You've controlled the entire industry. This continued through the 1990s when the Manhattan District DA finally cracked down on it. But things must have gotten better, obviously, by the early 1990s, right? By Like other things did. Right. We kind of skipped over something very important in the 1980s, mm-hmm. which was the redevelopment or the launch of the redevelopment of Times Square, which kicked off in 1984 with the Times Square Development Plan. This was a plan to clean up uh, the entire area around Times Square. And the Garment District is just south of that, Mm -hmm. obviously, going up to 41st Street, really. And they looked over their shoulder, and they saw the city throwing its weight behind this plan, right, that would not just clean up that district just north of them, but it would also try to attract more expensive, higher-paying tenants, right, big businesses to move into Times Square, and they would do a good job of that. More than a good job. Imagine the differences in the rents paid today by the big office tenants around Times Square Mm -hmm. than those businesses paying rents 30 years ago. There's a huge Mm -hmm. difference. The Garment District didn't want to see that same thing happen. And already in 1984, rents started to climb. And the Garment District wanted that to stop. They needed it to stop because already their costs were soaring. And they they thought, okay, this is the final straw. So they wanted to preserve their interests here so that they could stay instead of being priced out for more tourist-centric businesses. And not just tourist-centric because you have media companies there, too, or financial companies Mm -hmm. around Times Square that pay really expensive rents. So in 1987, under Mayor Koch, the city formed a special garment center district. And this was intended to stop the conversion of loft space to office space by designating 8 million square feet to manufacturing use. By preventing this redevelopment into office space and into condos, they hoped that they could keep the rents reasonable for these garment manufacturers. It wasn't popular, obviously, with developers. Or with residents of New York who were eyeing those loft spaces. Lofts were very popular in the 1980s. Still are today, right. Um, And, of course, this led to huge battles in the courts. But it was finally upheld. It's unfortunate that there isn't much evidence that this actually helps spur manufacturing because jobs have continued to decline. However, this garment district still exists and in a very real way thrives today. Now, there's been an effort to rebrand it as mm-hmm. the fashion district. Yes. And you and I had, you know, names, lots know of the conversations. Names, right, right. right. Should we call this the fashion district or the garment district? And 7th Avenue is even called Fashion Avenue right. as a way to sort of like, you know, set it up a little bit. And some in the industry and in the neighborhood have embraced the rebranding effort to call it the fashion district, although it is not without its dissenters. Um, Mm -hmm. It's true that when you look at the whole history of the neighborhood, after all, it comes from the garment trade, right? This this industry comes from the creation of everyday clothing. The manufacture, right. The manufacture, the design and the skilled labor that went into producing this. So it isn't just all about producing haute couture for next year's fashion show. Although, you know, again, they both existed here for, for decades, right? right? Both both that manufacturing side and, you know, the showroom with the celebrity side. So And they and they you still, know. you know, do exist today side by side. The neighborhood still it is a hub of American fashion if not as much for manufacturing, although it does still exist today, very much so, and there's some innovative new efforts underway to spur the next generation of manufacturers 
in the city. But by and large, the district remains more about the design and the selling and the promotion and those showrooms where buyer and seller and designer can meet. You know, I sometimes like going into those small little shops that are along the streets. The one that, that sells sort of zippers, zippers and sequins, that type of place. Well, it's just, it's good. It, you do often run out of sequins. <laughs> It's so interesting just to see like a collection of these shops sort of uh, like in a row. I mean, obviously, if you live in New York and you make your own clothes, most likely you've been to this neighborhood several times in a year. And even if you don't make clothes uh, but are interested in the making of clothes, walk through the neighborhood. There are some points of interest to see today since the development of the Fashion Center Business Improvement District, which was formed in 1993. They opened up a welcome center at 7th Avenue and 39th Street in 1996, and four years later, in 2000, started placing the Fashion Walk of Fame plaques in the sidewalk to commemorate the legends of American fashion industry. So it is fun to walk up and down 7th Avenue and to look at the greats of American fashion right at your own feet. Fashion's Walk of Fame. But the neighborhood is also a neighborhood in transition, you know? When you walk through, you'll doubtlessly see plenty of these fashion-oriented places of business, but also trendy new hotels, Mm -hmm. some of which are opening right as we speak, and office buildings that cater today to tech companies, ad agencies, and such. I mean, being in the halo of Times Square, it is sort of absorbing a little bit of that culture more than has ever before. Right, but there's still something unique to this collection of blocks between 34th and 42nd. It's still an area of fashion manufacturing that is unrivaled anywhere else in the world because no other city has such a concentration of fashion movers and shakers and cutters and stitchers all packed into the same city blocks. And so I believe that sews up our tale of New York's garment district. We went that whole time, actually, without any puns. You got them I, don't, all, I think all, we all got them out of our system <laughs> up front. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where Greg will be posting plenty of undoubtedly fabulous mm-hmm. photos of the garment district over the years. Also, check us out on Twitter and on Instagram. And I have a special announcement for our Patreon members – Our Patreon segment for this show is going to be a reading of an elongated passage further describing the 7th Avenue scene from the words of Lauren Bacall. And I will be saying them. So, (laughs) Patreon. And warning Greg has just poured himself another cocktail. That clip will be made available next week for all of our Patreon members. You can join us for as little as a dollar a month and help support the show at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. And Greg, we have almost hit the 400 mark wow. for 100 patrons. Thank all of you. That is incredible news. I, we, are, we are humbled and we greatly appreciate it. So thank you. And others, join us there because there's a lot of fun stuff that happens behind the curtain. And on that note, thus ends our show on The Garment District. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.